I'll be reading from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and verse 19 as well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this is the word of our Lord. You spend months preparing a presentation for your quarterly meeting and you go in and in your mind you've knocked it out of the park and yet your entire team hates your idea. Your boss tells you this will never work and you notice a feeling in your chest that it's not just that your ideas, your suggestions, your recommendations have been critiqued. It feels like you have been attacked. It feels like you have been rejected. Or you're excited about a promotion until that moment your boss slides you that new employment agreement to sign and you notice at the top there's the new job title, Senior Director of Operations, and you are devastated because you thought you were up for a vice president role. And you feel in your heart my company doesn't even understand my value. They don't see my worth or my contribution. Or you're mingling with guests at your latest art show. And as you mingle and answer questions and talk to people that you've invited and who they've invited to come and see your latest works that are on display, you recognize a regionally recognized artist who comes into your show. And as you go over to her to make an introduction, and say, like, these are my works. What do you think? You overhear her critiquing your work to someone else, and your, your heart just drops, and you feel, again, this devastation. You feel ashamed. Or you've worked your whole life for this particular day. It's retirement day, and you're excited about the office is throwing you a big party. They're celebrating you. They're going around the room and they're mentioning different contributions and how people have benefited from your work in their lives, not just vocationally, but just the kind of friend that you've been. And you're excited and you're excited about the next season of your life. And yet at the same time, you feel a sense of panic, like who am I tomorrow without this job? And what's going on in each of those four scenarios and what we're going to talk about this morning, because it's going on in your work all the time, is this invisible struggle with identity. 
Okay, so we're talking about the gospel at work. We're talking about the other six days, six and a half days that you are away from church, not just being trained for how do I do church ministry, which is great, but how am I trained for life? And as Richard mentioned last week, not just the vocational work you do, but work in the general sense, much of which, it, much of which is unpaid work. And we started with uh, week one, kind of God's design for work before the fall, before sin entered the picture, we saw some important truths, like God is the first worker in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And we see that work is intrinsically good. We don't do something to make it good or think that certain vocations are good, but most of them are bad or lesser. God talks about how this, there's this intrinsic value to work. And he's called us in what's called the cultural mandate, Genesis 1 and 2. And he's like, come with me and steward my creation and represent me in cultivating and creating and caring for the raw materials and the people and the life that I've put in my world. And we saw that the, the purpose and motive of doing that amidst a bunch of other purposes and motives that you may have that are lesser than this is that as God's representatives and those fashioned in God's image, we're thinking as we go to work, I am here to glorify God. I'm, I'm here to draw attention to the beauty and the truth and the glory and the presence of God. And I'm here to love my fellow man and fellow woman and lift them up by seeking their good. And then as Richard mentioned, he got all the negative stuff last week in lesson two, where he's starting in Genesis three. And we're t we talked about how work is cursed. I don't mean work is a curse, but it is a part of the curse. And Richard talked about how because of what happens in Genesis 3 with sin entering God's world, our, our work is constantly marred by conflict and toil and futility and, and frustration. And he talked about how we bring our own sin into the workplace every single day. And then we meet sin in other people. And we work in the midst of broken, sinful systems that don't reflect God's heart. Okay, so even starting with those two lessons about God's initial design for work and then work is cursed, it's actually the Christian worldview that makes sense of your daily experience in, again, either vocational work or just all the other work that you do. Because at times you'll think like this, that was, that was really great. That was a terrific experience, or I have a great relationship with this certain person at work. We work well together. It's really enjoyable. And then you're like, but why is work, even work that I enjoy, so hard sometimes, so broken sometimes? And the answer is Genesis 1 through 3. What we're going to be doing with the, kind of the rest of this series is, um, and I'm going to give you two statements. And if I wrote a book on faith and work, these would kind of be the, the framework around which the, the book would be built. Um, kind of so far, we've been talking about two things that we haven't called it out this way. So I'll make two statements. One is that God wants to work through you in your work. And the other statement is that God wants to work in you through your work. So God wants to work through you in your work. In other words, as you go and you're thinking, what does it look like to work Christianly? or to work with Christian distinctiveness. God wants to be doing that. And as we said, you are a steward of his gifts. You're a steward of this life that he's given you, abilities that he's given you. And as you go into the workplace, you are thinking, what does God want to do here in this environment through me? But this is so important that at the very same time that God is working through you in your work, he's working in you 
through your work. And what I mean is God is constantly at work to, to purify, to sanctify, to renew us into the image of Jesus. And you just think about, I'm, I'm spending a third of my waking hours of my life just in vocational work, let alone all this avocational work. And if you start thinking like all this time and all the relationships and all the interactions that I'm doing at work, it's obvious that this is going to be a key environment where God is making you more like Jesus. Okay, so if you compartmentalize your life and you're like, okay, when I come to church and I listen to a sermon, God is trying to use that to renew my heart and make me more like Jesus. And I would agree with that. He is. But you will spend way more time in your job, at your vocation, in your career, and just doing stuff around the house and the yard. You will spend way more time, way more energy than you will ever spend in church. So don't miss this massive opportunity to say, not only, God, what do you want me to be doing here? But God, what do you want to be doing in me here? Your work is a crucible of conformity to Christ. A crucible is like that little container that they can put metal, and it, it might be ceramic or something that withstands this heat. So that something in it can be kind of like superheated, and so that it's purified, it's refined over time in this fire. And so we just think when work is really, really easy and fun for you, God is making you more like his son Jesus. When work is really, really hard, when work is really, really boring and monotonous, when you feel like I'm making a difference, when you feel like I am making no difference at all, God this whole time is at work in you to make you more like Jesus. And the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about two key ways that he wants you to do that. This morning, we're going to talk about identity. Next week, we get to talk about everybody's favorite topic, which is idols or idolatry. And these are, these are two things that God wants you to see. That again, as you spend so much of your life at work, building a career, building, 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 look what comes up. So this morning... We're going to look at these five things about identity. We're going to look at, number one, the basics of identity. Number two, the brokenness of identity. Number three, the power of identity. Number four, the danger of identity. And number five, the renewal of, which will bring us back to Ephesians 2. Okay, so basics of identity. If you don't know what we're talking about, identity basically boils down to, as sociologists talk about it, and philosophers and theologians, it kind of comes down to your sense of self plus your sense of self-worth. And both of those things together are what form your identity. So your sense of self. And what I mean by this is every single one of us has countless, you could call them layers or, or facets to not just your personality, but to your identity. And some of them are objectively, like scientifically true of you, and other of them are more subjective. Um, you look at layers like, the, the physical and genetic qualities that you possess. And when other people encounter the you that is you, this is the first thing that they notice. It's like you have a certain height and weight and ethnicity, skin color, eye color, hair color, build. All those things are a part of your identity. And then you have things like relational and social qualities. You have vocational qualities. You have financial qualities. And all these things start stacking up and they are layers that collectively this forms your sense of self. David Lomas, who wrote The Truest Thing About You, a book on like, Christian identity, finding your identity in Christ, 
said, how you perceive yourself is generally made up of what you do, what you have, and what you desire. And you can just think of those three things, do, have, and desire, and how much of that is kind of like, how do I think of myself? Like, who am I? And a lot of times we're describing, well, this is what I do. I'm a, you know, I'm a pastor. Um, this is what I have. This is where I live. This is something I'm pursuing. So that's your sense of self. But there's an important other side to this that it's not just like who you are, like how do you identify, but also your sense of self-worth. And self-worth, we could say it many different things, many different ways, but basically what is it that you find your sense of significance in or your meaning? You're going through life and you're like, ah, like now I feel like I have a purpose. Like uh, you, ever, you ever feel this way? You, you try something new and you're like, I was made for this. Maybe you even just start a new hobby and you're like, oh my word, this is, like, this is me because this gives me this sense of like, empowerment, of security. It's enjoyable. There's this satisfaction that goes with that. I get recognition. I get affirmation. I get validation through this thing. And, and all of that is the idea of self-worth. And again, Lomas gives us this diagnostic, what identity in life or which of those layers, which of those facets in your life currently provides the most powerful dose of self-worth, of all the things that are said about you or are true about you or you believe or hope to be true about you, which of them is like the zinger and you're like, that's how I know I'm important. And, and for some of you on Mother's Day, it may be like the most important thing about me is that I'm a mom, okay? Um, or the most important thing about me is that I finally achieved a certain level in my career or a certain financial status or got into a certain neighborhood or club or whatever. That's a diagnostic for you. Now, I want to I connect this to the, to the biblical story that we've been telling so far, take you back to Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. So b- before sin entered the picture, we literally get our identity from God. And we were meant to derive our sense of self-worth in relation to him. So Adam and Eve, before sin, they're walking around the garden, they're, they're communing, they're fellowshipping with God, they're in community with God, and they're like, okay, we, we know we're someone, we know we're significant, our life has meaning because of this relationship we have to our creator. But that brings us to point two, the brokenness of identity. And I think we have to talk about this because you look around anywhere out there, you look anywhere in here, And in moments of clarity and honesty and humility, you realize my identity is broken. Because instead of always letting God define who I am, we want autonomy to define ourselves. Okay, A clear example of this is someone who thinks this way. I was born female, but I identify as a man. Or I I was born a man, but I identify as a man non-binary. And what I want you to hear in that is even the language of I identify as is saying what? It's, it's basically saying I claim a freedom, a prerogative. I claim an authority to define my own reality. I, get, I, I have the authority to define my own existence. I think the reality is, and the reason I use that example is, we often identify ourselves as something other than what God created us to be. We all kind of experience this dysphoria in real time, and I think one of the main places that we experience that is in our vocation, in our work. 
Okay? And again, there's a biblical explanation for this. So Genesis 3, what Richard preached on last week, is basically the, the story that Richard went through in part where Satan comes disguised as a serpent. He comes to Eve, and he's, he's pointing out this one tree and this one fruit in everything in the garden that they're not eating. And do you remember what that tree was called? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says you can eat from any tree, you can eat any fruit, you can eat anything in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes to Eve and basically says this, God doesn't want you to have that fruit because he wants you to be dependent on him. But you could eat the fruit and your eyes would be opened and you would know right from wrong for yourself and you wouldn't need to live in relation to God in the same way. You could be your own God. And basically the, the very first temptation in the Bible is like form your own identity. Form your own self. Be who you want to be. And instead of just finding your significance and your security in relation to God, you can find that in relation to yourself. And Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate it. And they're like, we don't need your validation, God, because now we see clearly like you do. We'll just define our own existence. We'll just chart our own path. And in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, you know, they have two sons and one of them murders the other one. Because probably as that story goes, as they bring their sacrifices to God, one of them is again bringing what God told them to bring. The other is like, I'll just define my own thing. I'll, I'll, I'll seek my own significance and how I want to worship. And then we have this tragic phrase in verse 16 of Genesis 4 that says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And what that's saying is he walked away from who he was in relation to God and he just chose to map out his own identity. Another familiar story in Genesis, and um, someone actually said to me this week, I think it's so cool that we're just going straight through the Bible and we're going to have all these lessons in Genesis. Well, that breaks now, okay, because I'm going to jump all the way to Genesis 11 and then we're off to the New Testament. But Genesis 11 is this familiar story of the Tower of Babel. And as it's pictured there, like people are migrating, you know, they're getting further and further from the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, and they're forming civilizations, they're forming culture, they're spreading out to some degree. And then on this plain of Shinar, this is verse 4 of Genesis 11, then they said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And what I want you to notice about that is in the cultural mandate, God had actually said the opposite. He says, humankind, like, spread out and fill the earth. And they're like, nah, we're going to stick together. And if we do stick together, we can reach heaven on our own terms without reference to God. And there's this key phrase that they say, let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, we don't need God to tell us who we are. We can be famous. We can be significant. We can have worth. We can have value. How? Through the work of our own hands. And friends, I think we're all tempted from at least that moment on to use our work to make a name for ourselves. Keller and Alsdorf in the book I've been referencing, Every Good Endeavor, they say this. We either get our name our defining essence, security, worth, and uniqueness, we either get that from what God has done for us and in us, 
or we make a name through what we can do for ourselves. We either get a name from God, him telling us, this is who you are. This is who I've designed you to be. Or we try to make a name for ourselves. Okay, that brings us to point three, the power of identity. Okay, what's, it, what's this doing to me? What's this doing to you as we're like, I'll, I'll just make a name for myself. I mean, why is that so bad? Well, I want you to think specifically about your work. Again, you can think of your paid work, like career vocation, that path, that calling, and also some unpaid work. But think about why do you do the things that you do? Even within that job, the things that you do are going to look both similar to other people who do your job and also different from. Your priorities will be different. Some of your actions will be different. The question is why? And biblically and just philosophically, our actions are driven by what? By motives or motivations. But did you know our motivations have something beneath them? And that is identity. So your identity will always drive your motives, will always drive your actions. So if you want to understand what you do and why you do the things that you do, you can't just go back to like, well, what motivates me? Oh, greed. Well, okay, so what are you seeking that you're greedy? What are you seeking that you want to make a name for yourself? That's identity, okay? So I want you to think now, like in your workplace, most of you, how do you see yourself and how do you want others to see you? Okay, if, you, if you're kind of creating this persona of like, this is who I am, and you're picking a couple key things, and you're thinking, I, I, I wish other people saw me as, and I'll give you some examples of what I'm talking about. I wish some people saw me as like competent, articulate, as um, like I, I'm the fun person at work, like the party person, like I'm the planner, I'm the loyal person, I'm the hard worker, I'm the, I'm the peacemaker that I can always hear both sides. Okay, so... I want you to think about your own work, again, vocationally and avocationally, and how do you see yourself and how do you want other people to see you? We're talking about identity, okay? Now, I want you to understand, like, two things about the power of identity. One, identity is powerful because it drives everything you do, okay? And I'll just go back to one of the things I just said. Let's, let's assume that you're like, I want to be perceived as, like, the hardest worker on my team, so now that's going to start driving, like, not an action. It'll start driving dozens or hundreds of actions. Like, you're the first person there in the morning unlocking the office for everybody else. You're the last person to leave and shut off the lights at the end of the day. You're the one pulling overtime. You're the one that, like, you're like, don't, hey, don't worry. I'll be on call again this weekend. I got it. And maybe you're always checking this device. Like, did I miss something? I know it's like family night. I know we're at the thing. But like, did I miss anything? Because it's really important to me that I, I feel like the hardest worker and that other people perceive me to be the hardest worker. And you become a workaholic. You, you, you take on this weight in your soul of like, I can't let anyone down or they won't see me as this hard worker. And all these actions are overflowing. So you find your identity. What do you want to be perceived as? I could use the word persona. You know, what, do you, what, what perception? How do you want to be viewed by other people? Like, when I think of this person at work, this is what I think of. And how is that driving your actions? But secondly, identity is powerful because it drives how you respond to both success and failure. And Tim Keller kind of puts it like this. When you're trying to find your identity in something other than God, success always goes to your head and failure always goes to your heart. 
Like, if you're doing well, you get this big head, and you're like, yeah, I'm rolling with it. I got it. And someone critiques your stuff, and you're devastated. It goes right to your heart. So again, an illustration, let's just say you want to be perceived as, as competent, like you're really thoughtful. And I use this example, and you, you make this presentation, you make this proposal, and people hate it. And you're not like, oh, well, I mean, they don't like my ideas, so let's work with their ideas. Like, is there an element that you did like that we can build around? Or what, what are your better ideas? No, you're like, I, I'm, people hate me. Like, I'll just, I guess I'll just go home and just crawl in bed and not come back out for a while because just I'm rejected. And it's just as crazy if your team is like, oh, my word, this is the greatest proposal that we've ever seen in our lives. And you're like, finally, my, my life has worth. I have value. I'm, I'm unbelievably awesome. And finally, other people recognize that. And that's this power that identity has over us to drive our actions, to drive our reactions in really unhealthy ways. And that brings us to the danger and I'm, I'm already talking about the danger, and I'm not talking about a danger. It's not a danger, it's many dangers. And uh, before we kind of get into this, I want to say it's, it's okay for your work, your vocation to be a part of your identity. The reality is it is a part of yourself. Like God called you into a particular field of work. He gifted you in certain ways. He blessed you with a certain kind of education along the way to get you to a certain point where you can do that. So it's not wrong to say, like, I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm an electrician. I'm an attorney. I'm an engineer. I'm a coach. I'm a server. I'm a barista. Like, that is not wrong, okay? And I'm not saying that it's wrong. You don't, we don't sit here when, when someone's introduced to you and you're introduced to them, and they're like, oh, tell me a little about yourself. You're not like, okay, I know I want to say that I'm a pastor, but that's bad. So um, I'm an apprentice of Jesus. You know, and, and that's true too. But it's not bad. It's not like a trick question or a trap when, okay, when I come to you and I'm be like, hey, tell me a little about yourself. And some of you are guests here this morning. I may say, hey, like, hey, what brings you to Denver? What do you do? It's not a trick. And you're like, I'm a dentist. And be like, Bam, that's, this is what we're talking about, see? That's fine. It's a, it's a layer of your identity. And I also want to say it's important to understand that there is always a situatedness to your identity. And what I mean is your gender, your ethnicity, your family of origin, your subculture, your history, your education, your vocation, many, many other things will dramatically shape the way you perceive your world and interact with it. You know, when, when God became flesh... There was a situatedness even to Jesus being like a human male, a Jew, born in first century Nazareth. Well, he was born in Bethlehem, but you know what I mean. He lived in Nazareth. So all of this history of his life, there is a situatedness to it. And it's not wrong to say, yeah, like I have an ethnicity, I have a, a gender, I have a job, I have a neighborhood, I've got all these things. The problem is when you over-identify with your work, or something else. The problem is when you're like this persona that I've created that I want other people to believe about me or think about me as soon as my name pops in their head, that defines me. It is a main source or the main source of my validation in life. I know I have meaning because of this thing rather than just saying like, yes, this is my job and I'm so grateful for it. 
So let me give you this one main danger, and then I'm going to give you kind of examples of this one main danger, okay? Here's the danger. Whatever you allow to define you and validate you has the power to control you. Whatever you give the power to, to define you and to validate you has control over you. So just think for a moment, what am I allowing to define me in connection with my work? What am I seeking validation in at my work? And do you see ways that that may be controlling you? And I said, I'll give you some examples. So um, as, as Richard did last week and just sharing like very honestly, just like here's some stuff I struggle with at work. Well, I'm, I wanna kind of do the same and say like when it comes to identity, I know I want to be perceived as competent as thoughtful, as someone who can not just jump to a decision or jump to an ideological or theological position without wrestling with a lot of different perspectives and taking in a lot of different information before landing on something, okay? I want to be perceived as, you know, balanced, as caring, as compassionate. I want to be perceived as someone who's like, Man, you, you can take the word of God and wrestle with it and exposit it. You can draw out truth and also share it with other people in really effective ways. And I think those are all good things. It's good to be thoughtful. It's good to be caring. It's good to be able to read the Bible and share it with other people in effective ways. It is not good to seek an identity in those things. Okay, so I can tell you what this is doing to me under these, and I'll give you six things. These are six practical things that are all saying, if you give something the power to define you and to validate you, here's what you're handing over, okay? Number one, you're controlled by the need to display that identity. If, if you're like, I'm finding my identity in competency, then I'm now controlled by certain situations. And do you ever find yourself jumping at certain opportunities because you're like, this will show other people how competent I am. And you avoid other situations that God has given you as part of your job because it'll show other people how incompetent you are with that stuff. And you jump into certain conversations while avoiding other important hard conversations because you're like, the hard conversation is going to lead to conflict. And I like to be perceived as a peacemaker. Can't get that there. So let's jump into this one where people already like me and it's just going to be easy. But they're going to be like, you're so fun. You're so caring. You're so thoughtful. Um, here's another one for me when I find my identity in being a really responsive person where, you know, it, there's this little hit of endorphins when it's like, man, you're, you're like the most responsive pastor I've ever had. Like I send you a message and you're just immediately on it. Okay. But I'll tell you like over years of doing that and finding my identity in that, what it did is I was like, just practically speaking, I was incredibly inefficient with my work. You know why? Because all my notifications are turned on and I'm like, who's that? They may need a response right immediately right this second to know that I'm responsive. It just doesn't work in work. And then you're starting to let certain people kind of control and manipulate you. And like, I'm checking messages all the time. I'm over committing to stuff. Like, I, I, I got to do that too. And I got to be seen there. And I got to help these people. And it's like, before you know it, your family gets the leftovers and there isn't much left over. So you're controlled by the need to display your identity. Number two, you are easily manipulated by other people. Some will manipulate you with flattery. Some will manipulate you with criticism. 
some will manipulate you with an amazing opportunity. You know, because the boss will come and they'll learn you and they'll be like, it's, it's not, hey, I got something you got to do before the weekend. But it's like, here, here's an opportunity to prove this thing about your identity. Or some may manipulate you with guilt and shame. Like, oh, okay, you didn't get to that. Okay, like, really? But when you're struggling to find your identity in something, other people, especially as they kind of study your character, your personality, your reactions, they will start manipulating you. And by the way, it's like narcissistic people, it's like very dangerous people that will take the time to learn you so that they can control you and manipulate you. But you, you kind of kill their power when you're like, I'm not finding, I'm not seeking my identity in that kind of reaction from you. So now you can't manipulate me. I mean, here's another one. I've, I've mentioned criticism a couple times, but like, I don't like criticism either. And I don't, I don't even like criticism even if it's not true or fair criticism. And I, I want to prove sometimes that I'm better than that last negative thing that was said about me. So who gets to control me? The people who say negative things, even knowing that those negative things are slander. They now get to control what's going on in here, what's going on in here, what's going on with my time and energy. And I'm no longer free to just serve Christ. I'm being manipulated by other people. And so are you. Um, number three, we're still talking about the danger of this. You are easily hurt by contrary opinions and perspectives. And again, it doesn't feel like people are providing feedback, even like constructive criticism on your ideas and your, your uh, perspectives and your proposals. It feels like they're attacking you. This can happen to me. Again, I'm just trying to be honest with you that like I go through all this same stuff myself, that there's so many areas that are like theological or church related where it's like someone will come to me after like 90 seconds of a conversation and be like, you're completely wrong about this. And this thing goes on sometimes inside my head where I think I've literally studied this for hundreds or thousands of hours. Like you never thought about this until 90 seconds ago, but you think you know this better than me. And there is a death of expertise in our culture and that's, that's another thing. But all I'm saying is in, instead of just weighing that in a healthy way, in a humble way, you can be easily hurt by contrary opinions and perspectives and just be like, who are you to tell me? Like, I know this way better than you do versus maybe appreciating some feedback or a different perspective. Okay, number four, you can be dangerously moralistic, believing that who you are, and I mean your value, is determined by your achievement or your performance. There's this thing we often do when we're seeking an identity in work where we either pretend or we perform. Because you're like, it's so important to me that you see me a certain way and I see myself a certain way. And in certain instances at work, I have to pretend to be something I'm not so that you think I'm that thing that I'm not. Ironic. Or I gotta perform, 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 perform. And we become very moralistic in our hearts and we're no longer grace-based individuals. We're Moralistic, pretending and performing and pretending and performing. Number five, you'll look down at certain jobs and tasks as if they're beneath you, and you will envy other jobs and tasks that you believe above you, but you want to get there. And you actually despise people in your heart for having like a position or an opportunity that you don't have because you so identify with that thing, you've got to have it. 
And then number six, you don't know who you are apart from success in that work. And I mentioned that work is taken away from you, maybe through retirement, maybe you're fired, maybe you're promoted, but it's not actually the job that you're finding validation in, you're finding fulfillment in, and you're like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Okay, so those are all dangers. Now let's end, come back to Ephesians 2 with me. If you're not open there, um, reopen to there. How do, we, how do we get through this? Because that's my goal is that as you experience these different things in work, and again, I'm trying to suggest to you that there, there are dozens or hundreds of manifestations day to day as you go in thinking like uh, I identify as or I'm seeking an identity in and God doesn't want that happening to you. So how do you renew your identity or experience a renewal? Now, I come back to Ephesians 2 and I love this chapter because as it's, as it's describing God's gracious work of salvation in your life, it uses the language of identity, okay? So there are four things I see here. We, we do these things over and over in repentance and faith, and God is renewing our identity. Number one, trust that God loved and accepted you at your worst, okay? So the beginning of this text is talking about how we were children of disobedience and children of wrath, which means children destined for punishment because we were walking in disobedience. And he says here, we were following the passions of our flesh, just kind of doing whatever our hearts and minds desired without reference to God. And the picture there is not that you were remotely as bad as you could be, okay? The idea of following the passions of your flesh is not like everything that came from you was so terrible before Jesus, and now it's all good. That's, that's, not, that's not Christianity. But the idea is you're, you're just following, like, I have this whim, I have this desire, I'm seeking this identity in this thing, I'm just going to do it. And yet, when did God love us? When did God lavish grace on us? When was God merciful to us? Not only merciful, but rich in mercy. Verse 5 says, when we were dead in our trespasses. And the idea of dead in our trespasses is just like, what is a dead person capable of? Nothing, okay? So we're not, the, the Christian method and model, so I'm not, don't hear me saying this, is like, here's this new way to find your identity again in Christ and Christ alone. And if you just do these couple things, you're gonna be great. Like the idea is not like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and being like, okay, is this good enough for you now, God? Okay, well, I'll keep working. Is, now am I good enough? Now am I good enough? Again, point one here is just trust that God loved and accepted you at your worst. He's like, you were dead in your sins. You had nothing to offer me. You had broken away from simply reflecting who I am in who you are, reflecting the image of God through your personality, through your character, through your faith, through your choices. You had broken away from that. But I loved you. Why? Just simply because I loved you. You're, you're my kids, even though you are children of disobedience. Now, I think on the, on, from a human standpoint, we often fake our identity because we think, like, you won't love and accept me if you really know who I am. You ever feel that? Like, if even a spouse or a close friend, let alone someone at work who's already antagonistic towards you, you don't just put it all out there and you're honest. You, you're kind of phony in some ways because you're like, people wouldn't love me. They wouldn't accept me if they really knew, like, what I'm seeking an identity in. But what this Ephesians 2 text is saying is you, you never have to put it on for God. You never have to pretend with God. You never have to be like, no, I'm not seeking my identity in that stuff, God. It's just you and me. I just love you so much. He's like, I see you dead. 
okay? I see you utterly helpless and lost and broken by the curse and by sin. And he's like, and I'm not going to treat you on the basis of your identity. I'm going to treat you on the basis of my identity. And I am a God rich in mercy. So let's go, okay? God loves you at your worst. Secondly, see that God has the prerogative to show you who you really are. God has that right. God has that authority. God has that prerogative. And he does it both negatively and positively. Again, he says, you were children of wrath. I'm not saying that to be mean, but it's, it's a reality that you were children of disobedience, children of wrath. But he also says it positively where he's like, I had him, uh, Jason, this morning read verse 19. So you can see God's like, you are now because of the work of Jesus, you are a citizen of my kingdom, not just a citizen of the world, not just a citizen of America, not just a citizen of like the satanic kingdom that rules down here. He's like, no, you're a part of my kingdom. You're a member of my household. And I love verse 10 where he's like, you are my workmanship. And that is the Greek word poema from which we get our English word poem. And the idea of poema or workmanship is Jesus is claiming the, the prerogative. He's claiming the authority to say, you, Matt, you fill in your name. He's like, you are the product of my work. And I mean handiwork. You're my poem. You're my artwork. Okay? God has the right to show you who you really are. Thirdly, practice a lifestyle that is consistent with that true identity. And this is verse 10 again. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so he's not just saying you're God's handiwork. He's saying as God's handiwork, as this identity that's been designed by God, your process then of, of self-discovery is really like I'm, I'm trying to discover and I'm trying to mature who God designed me to be. You know, if you're a hammer, drive nails. If you're a vacuum cleaner, suck up dirt. If you're a mower, cut the grass. And I mean, none of you are that. I'm not saying you're machines. We talked about that last week. The point is, it's, it's fun watching your kids do this as they get older. There's something new in the house. Like we have this new little vacuum cleaner that gets in all the little edges of the kitchen and like really tight spots. And someone came and they were like, what is that, a wine bottle opener? And I'm like, no, but it'd be fun to see you try to open a wine bottle with that, you know? And no, it's a vacuum cleaner. So when you know what something's design purpose is, then it's like, now I can use it in accordance with how the designer designed it. And there's going to be joy and there's going to be functionality and there's going to be like, there's going to be genuine fulfillment because that's what it's for. I want to say that our culture talks a lot about authenticity. That's a buzzword, like be authentic, be true to yourself. And, and what they mean by that, if you don't know, they're actually not saying be true to yourself. They're saying fashion your own identity through expressive individualism. So don't, don't worry about God's design. We don't acknowledge a God. Like, you be you. you. You design your designer life, and then don't let anyone budge you off of that. And the, the being true to yourself is being true to a mix of things that are true about you and are not true about you. I mean, there's an element of truth here to authenticity, but the scripture would say you got to be true to your true self. And your true self is given to you by God, is defined by God, and it's validated by God. 
You have to be true to the truest thing about you, which is you're God's special creation, God's handiwork, God's beloved and adopted child. And as you go into work every day, you're going to find, hey, there is real joy. There is real contentment. There is real satisfaction in being true to who God says I am. And the more I can remind myself of these things or even take a lunch break and call a friend and be like, I have admittedly lost sight of that because I am super frustrated coming out of this meeting. Or I felt something like it was too much of a pick-me-up in that meeting when she said this and I felt this certain way. And let's reground ourselves in, yes, God wants you to have joy and contentment and satisfaction. He wants you to thrive and flourish. You will not find that seeking an identity in something that's partly true about you and partly not true, okay? So practice a lifestyle consistent with your true identity. And then finally, let God be your decisive validator. And that's a Tim Keller term. I was at a conference. He said that and then explained it where we are going through life. And when you're seeking an identity, what we mean by that is like, I'm not trying to figure out who I am. So much as we're saying, I'm seeking from you validation that I'm significant, that I'm a someone, that that my life matters, that I have worth, that I have meaning, that I have purpose, all of these things. And we're going through life and we get these little hits of endorphin, as I said, when someone validates you for something and you're like, good, because I was trying to base an identity in that. And it's frustrating when you're like, someone validates you and you're like, I I didn't even want to be associated with that. So then you figure out, like, I changed that and do something different. So I get validation over here. And the idea of a decisive validator, and some call this like living for an audience of one, is like through the cacophony of noise of voices and opinions and perspectives and criticism and feedback on your life and mine. Do you hear the clarity of God's voice saying, I'm proud of you. I affirm you. I validate that even though you're making choices that are sometimes very different than coworkers, I'm proud of you, my child. And the idea of decisive validation is that as you're seeking approval, as you're seeking commendation, God's voice has the final and the ultimate say. And friends, if we can learn to live in light of like in Ephesians 2, where it's like God identified me as very broken. Now he identifies me as his child, as adopted, as his handiwork. Now, what's a way to to live, to function that, that is compatible with, that aligns with, that is humanizing in the way that God intends me to be humanized. And you're kind of off and running, not with a conflict, tension, challenge-free life and work, because we talked about that last week. That's always going to keep showing up. But through the midst of that, you can say, I'm seeking God's validation. I'm defining myself the way he defines me. So satisfying work, and that's what we're after, not just getting through. Get through for 60, 70, 80 years, then I die, then then it's great. No, we're after satisfying work, meaningful work. And that's work that aligns with God's design and seeks God's validation. And you can do this, and we can encourage each other in this. Satisfying work is work that aligns with God's design and seeks God's validation. Let's pray.